your news program every morning with up-to-the-minute news and extensive analysis of issues from Korea and abroad. This morning with Alex Jensen on TBS EFM. Now then, why do some countries do so well and others not so much? Why is South Korea one of the country's leading economies and North Korea, well, frankly, left behind? Many of us can at some level answer that already just by a brief study of the Kim regime, the family dynasty that's now in its third generation. But Professor James Robinson, in honour of our new fall season, joins us here at TBS EFM to help elaborate on that. He's the author of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty from Harris School of Public Policy at Chicago University. Thank you for joining us. Well, my pleasure. So the Koreas are obviously a, a very clear example of this within a single century. In fact, within just a few decades. Is that the perfect example for your case? Well, I think it is. I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, it is in the sense that I think most people have a sort of common sense understanding of what went on in North and South Korea and, you know, what leads to this enormous economic divergence. But it, it, it isn't also because it gets confused with other stuff like capitalism and communism and, and, you know, and that's not what it's about in our view. You know, in our view, North Korea, you know, is very similar to most other poor countries that are not avowedly communist. So, so it, it's a great example, but, but it, it has problems also. But North Korea had far greater economic foundations than the South immediately after the Korean War even. Um, and, and Japan uh, had built up the North. So it was really theirs to lose and the South's to gain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to the, yes, exactly. To the extent there was investment and industrial development during the, the Japanese colonial period, it was more in the North than the South. You know, but our theory says we know very well what drives economic prosperity, what causes economic prosperity. It's investment in education in capital but mostly it's innovation you know it's technological change adopting innovating new technologies which raise productivity which in generate wealth and you know where does innovation come from you know where does technological change come from it comes from people's creativity from individual creativity ideas vision you know innovation and you know why is there so much of that in south korea and not in North Korea, and that has everything to do with how those societies are organized, you know, and how in South Korea society is organized in a way which incentivizes and creates opportunities for people to do all the things that make a country rich. And in North Korea, <laughs> people are disincentivized and nobody has opportunities to do what it takes to make a country rich. We are talking there about man-made successes and failures. Does geography and, and even more distant history not play a, a key role? I don't think so. I mean, clearly not in the Korean case. You know, there's no reason why North Korea couldn't be just as rich as South Korea, you know, if it hadn't been organised differently starting in the 1940s and 1950s. And, I, you know, our general view, I think, you know, you can think that geography play some context, you know, some role in some particular type of context. But, you know, we try to present a lot of evidence to show that that's really not the big story. I don't think there's any reason why uh, African countries can't be economically 
successful. You know, Botswana has been one of the most economically successful countries in the world in the last 50 or 60 years, and it's a landlocked tropical country in Africa. So, you know, it can be done. It's just a matter of creating the right institutions, what we call institutions in society that creates incentives and opportunities for people to do what it takes to make a country rich. That's, so, so geography is not terribly important in our view. Looking at uh, some Middle Eastern nations, uh, we, we've all seen what Syria has been going through, but also since the uh, so-called Arab Spring, some nations clearly fared better than others out of that. And, and we have to consider individual circumstances, but are there any generalised views of, of why some have done better than others? Um, well, you know, in, in the context of the theory of our book, you know, what are the economic problems in the Middle East? You know, that's a particular institutional problem. You know, they have the same, you know, not maybe not in the same degree as North Korea, but many of those societies, you know, Many Middle Eastern societies, like Syria, for example, have a personalized dictatorship just like North Korea. They're not avowedly communist, but as far as the economy is concerned, it has many of the same perverse, uh, adverse consequences. You know, how come the Middle East ended up like that? Well, you know, I think you have to look in history, and that's what we do in the book, to ask, you know, why one part of the world is poor and another part of the world is rich. You know, in the Middle East, there was a long history of what we call very extractive institutions during the Ottoman period. Mm. And then you have a period of European uh, colonialism, uh, you know, where European powers come, they organize these societies for their benefit, which typically didn't coincide with the benefit of the people in those societies. And then since European colonialism collapsed in the Middle East after the Second World War, you know, there have been struggles to create states, to create national identities, you know, very similar to any kind of post-colonial society. You know, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa or you look at Latin America in the 19th century, you see the same types of conflicts in society over institutions, over the nature of the state, over the borders, you know, that you see in the Middle East. So, yes. you know, from our point of view, the Middle East looks very similar to other parts of the world. In fact, the Ottoman Empire had a lot in common with the Spanish colonial empire. So. You know, historic, it's a sort of historical process of how the institutions get created in different parts of the world. And, you know, why is there such variable outcomes in the Middle East today? You know, well, look at the place that's doing best, Tunisia. You know, Tunisia was very marginal to the Ottoman state in the 19th century. It managed to have a sort of independent, autonomous modernization program, you know, and it did after independence as well. So I would look at the different history of Tunisia very different type of institutions it created and that's why it's been able to kind of generate a much more progressive dynamic as a consequence of the Arab Spring, you know, compared yes. to other places like Egypt where you've got basically the original, you know, the initial conditions reproducing itself or Syria where the whole thing has just sort of collapsed. Really interesting. Is there a way, do you see through history, to escape one's bad choices and, and circumstances? For example, a country like India, which has a lot of innovation going on, has the opportunity for great economic success, but which is still ravaged by poverty. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I see, you know, I think there's, I, you know, I'm very, I would be very optimistic about, about India. I mean, I think that India, you know, if you look historically, you know, India suffered from 200 years of British colonialism, but in many ways it's done... Uh, a lot of what is necessary to create what we call an inclusive society. So we, you know, we argue, you know, what is it about South Korea that's allowed 
all of this innovation and economic growth, we'd say, well, it's the inclusive nature of economic institutions. And, you know, and behind that is politics. It's the inclusive nature of political institutions. South Korea didn't always have that. It didn't have it under General Park, but, but, but it's made a transition to this inclusive mm. political institutions in the last 20 years. And I would think, you know, if you look at India, India has made a slow kind of transition towards inclusive political institutions over the last, you know, over the period since independence, particularly over the period since the 1980s. And I think you've seen that going along with more and more and more economic dynamism. And I would say, you know, if you compare India to China, India has much more of a consolidated, sustainable model of politics uh, and inclusion than China does, where economic growth in China, it's been driven by a movement towards what we call inclusive institutions, but it's been driven by a dictatorship. And, you know, the argument in the book is that that's a sort of incompatible situation. You need to have inclusion everywhere in the political sphere to generate that in the economic sphere. And India are much closer to that than China is, in my view. How sustainable is uh, a successful nation, though? I, I've read arguments before that have suggested that all major countries like empires in the past go through cycles and eventually degenerate seemingly on the back of their own success but but is that inevitable i don't think so i mean well, you know what we, we you know there's certainly examples in history of relatively inclusive societies kind of going into reverse and becoming much more extractive uh in the book we emphasize a lot that you know, once you set up a particular type of society, an inclusive society or an extractive society, there are sort of feedback mechanisms that tend to keep that society in place. You know, we look at the U.S. in the last 200 years and we sort of say there's been lots of challenges to inclusive institutions in the United States, but there's also sort of feedback that stops those challenges succeeding. That being said, so I don't think there's anything inevitable about, right. you know, success leading to decline or something like yeah. that. But it's certainly true that, you know, any, in any inclusive society, there's incentives, you know, to, to try to make it extractive. And, you know, many people look at what's happening in the U.S. in the last decades with this massive increase in inequality. And, you know, and they say, you know, that's what's happening in the U.S., that, that you know, there's, a, there's reducing inclusion, there's more extraction. And I'm not sure I believe that, but it certainly could happen and it has happened you know historically you yeah. know as you as you say yes just to finish off with an economic example for us here in south korea one of the big concerns is slowing growth i mean we're still moving forward as an economy but the areas for potential growth are, are becoming more limited with our own success again it's the success that's driven and is driving that situation does it have to be a bad thing though is the doom-mongering that we see in the media as real as it needs to be well i you know i think slowing down in growth is a, is, is a sort of natural thing you know the only reason you know why could south korea grow so incredibly rapidly you know in the 1970s and 1980s well because it was very far behind the sort of where world technology was it had an awful lot to learn it had an awful lot to borrow but once you've kind of absorbed all the ideas and innovations from everywhere else then you have to create the innovations yourself. And that's a much harder thing to do than borrow. You know, why are the Chinese growing so rapidly? Because they're doing the same thing. You know, they're borrowing innovation technology. 
But once you have to create it yourself, that's a much more difficult thing. Mm. You know? so, so I think that's, that's a much slower process. And you know, if you look at any kind of leading economic country over the last 200 years, they grow much slower than a country like South Korea, which cap- catches up over a period of 30 or 40 years. So I think that's an inevitable part of the process. But I think you know, what you've seen in South Korea is immense capacity uh, to be innovative and creative and, and, you know, and, and to sort of establish itself mm-hmm. as a world technological leader. So I would be optimistic that you know, South Korea has in place you know, what it takes to maintain its position in the world economy. Thank you so much, Professor Robinson. It's, it's really helpful having you on the line. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm sure the pleasure is all of ours. Professor James Robinson, the author of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty.